I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric. Proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast. Throughout the history of motor racing, the drivers have always been the big stars, always in the headlines. But their performance on the track depends on some brilliant engineers. This motorsport podcast series explores what it takes to handle the greatest drivers in the sport by talking to some of the greatest engineers. These podcasts are brought to you in association with Scalextric, and we're joined today by our guest, Gary Anderson. Gary, in the 1970s, was a mechanic at Brabham before moving to McLaren. And in the 80s, he crossed the Atlantic to IndyCar, working for the Rick Galles team. Then it was Jordan, a wonderful green Formula One car that I think we all absolutely love. Then it was on to Stuart Grand Prix and Jaguar. And then in 2003, Gary went back to Jordan. So, how we're going to cover all that in one hour, I don't know, but we'll go give it a try, Gary. Yeah, we'll give it our best shot. Yeah, it's been a, been a long time, but it's been a, an interesting time. Absolutely. You got a, a really good break, didn't you, by going to Brabham. That was in the mid-70s as a mechanic. And I wondered how much you learnt from being around Gordon Murray. Well, a huge amount. You can't not learn from somebody as clever as Gordon is, but... The big thing is you've got to want to learn. I mean, I actually went to work for Brabham in 1972. It's, uh, I was working at racing stables at Brands Hatch. I'd just come over from Ireland at the beginning of 1972. And um, I started work on a building site, as you do as a good Irishman. Um, <laughs> but I, I got a job driving dump trucks, so that was okay. That developed into meeting somebody, and I got a job at the at MRS at Brands Hatch at the racing school. Um, and again, somebody there gave me an address and said, oh, look, you know, the Brabham are looking for some people to build Formula 3 and, and Formula Atlantic cars. So my wife wrote a letter and I got an answer back from both Bernie Eccleston and from Colin Seeley. Colin ran the sort of production side. Um, Colin's letter said, sorry, but we haven't got any vacancies. And Bernie's letter said, um, thank you very much for your inquiry. Yes, we have a vacancy. Can you come and see us? <laughs> so that was pretty confusing to start with. And, uh, so I went there and and uh, I got a job building Formula 3 and Atlantic cars in, in the latter part of 1972. And then uh, again, in the beginning of, of 73, you know, I, was always, I always worked hard, but the beginning of 73, um, they offered me a job in, on the F1 team. So a boy from Ireland was heading off to, to Europe to do some uh, motor racing and get paid for it, which is the most exciting thing. <laughs> yes. Tell me, though... Um... I wondered if you'd always wanted to be a driver rather than an engineer, because I think you did some racing, didn't you? Yeah. Well, uh, the reality of it is I think everybody wants to be a driver. You know, you, you, you see that side of it. You see the, 
you see the driver side of, of racing. And, and, you know, I come from Ireland. We used to do things with cars. You know, you, those were the days whenever you could open the bonnet and that look in there and say, oh, look at that, there's an engine. And you could do something with it to make it go faster. Um, if you want wider wheels, you sort of got a hacksaw out and cut the rim in two and weld a piece into it, you know. So you always did stuff to drive cars, and I did a bit of rallying in Ireland. Um, but then when I came to England, obviously, the, the MRS at the, the racing stables, one of my payday was I could get 10 laps in a Formula Ford around the club circuit at Brands Highs, which was always good fun. But I did want to drive, yes, but, you know, at uh, six foot odd tall, and um, having had a couple of pints of Guinness in my time, I was probably overweight and too tall. So you try. I did try in the mid-70s to to have a go. That was what Anson was all about to begin with initially. Um, but again, you realise how much it costs and, you know, you just don't have the money or the talent or the, the willpower or the fight. You need a huge amount of that. Yeah. You, you just mentioned Anson. And for those who don't have long memories, um, this was you, I think, and Bob Simpson from Tour. Yeah. So at this point... Your plan was to be a constructor in your own right. Yeah, I mean, we'd, I would work for Brabham. Um, we'd built Formula 3 and Atlantic cars. I did a bit of Formula 1. I um, I was always somebody who wanted to learn, so I you know, I would sit down in my toolbox with Gordon Murray there and ask him why. Why, why did that do that? Or what was suspension geometry? Or why did that go up and down or in and out or whatever? And because of that, you know, I got an opportunity. Whatever they needed you know, a, a rear anti-roll bar bracket made up, Gordon would give you a sort of rough plan and say, could you do something? So you'd make something up to make it work. So I got a, a sort of initiation into into what the design needed to be. Um, and obviously then you, you start dreaming and thinking, right, okay, I can build these cars ourselves and, and I can drive and so on and so forth. So we, we took a Brabham BT38, bits of a Brabham BT38 we bought from Bernie and put it together a bit differently, stressed the engine in one thing or another, and um, ended up with the first Anson, really, which I drove a bit. And then a guy called Richard Parsons drove it. It was it was pretty decent. It wasn't a bad little car, but, you know, again, it's the same old thing. We were two people in a in a shed at home, yeah. back of a butcher's shop, and my wife making uh, making tea. So, uh, you know, it was either a go-in honeymoon or, or buy a drawing board. We chose the drawing board. This was a fantastic grounding for you, though, for what came later, wasn't it? Because you were doing, you know, you and uh, Bob Simpson, you were doing everything yourselves, and therefore you weren't outsourcing stuff like we see today. Um, how much did you benefit? Before you went off to McLaren, um, you must have felt much more ready to, to, to become as a, a Formula One engineer, if you like. Well, yes. I mean, there's nothing like actually sort of having to sit down and, I suppose, design a few bits or come up with solutions to problems, I call it, um, which means you end up building a car. And in those days, again, you know, you were taking a lot of of stuff, bits and pieces from all around the place and trying to put it all together. Um, so it, it, you taught yourself in a way how to, how to draw stuff and how to make mistakes and, and how to recover from mistakes. And... Um, that that was good for me. I mean, that took me to McLaren. And again, you know, McLaren, I was willing to learn and, and they gave me an opportunity to sort of get involved in stuff. You know, I would be, be sort of uh, Teddy Mayer's right-hand man as far as engineering was concerned. And because Teddy tended tend to get distracted a little bit from it all. So, you know, I would sort of try and pull him back a bit. 
but nothing is ever nothing. You know, every day is a school day, and you've got to take it in that way. No matter whether it's Formula Three, Formula Atlantic, Super V, Formula One, whatever, it doesn't really matter. You always learn something, something new, and you try to understand something new. What was Teddy Mayer like to work with, Gary? Did, did he did he give you all the freedom that you wanted? It was a strange time in McLaren's life. You know, um, they just won the 76 championship with James. I joined them in 77. And it was a time whenever, um, you know, ground effect cars were starting to come into vogue with the Lotus. And they were a bit late and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I remember we went testing at Paul Rickard and, um, in 77. And the, the two Lotuses were miles ahead of James, who was third quickest in the McLaren M26. I mean, whenever I joined McLaren, the M26 was parked up in the corner of the workshop because it had it had carbon fiber, or a, a sort of a composite cockpit sides, which James didn't like because he thought if the car goes upside down, how do I get out of it? And also the way the gear change was routed, it meant the changing gear, you had to think about it a bit. It didn't try to flow down your arm. So one of the first jobs I got whenever I went to McLaren was to take the M26 and try to make it into a car that the driver could drive. It was quite a challenge, you know, how to rewrite all the gear change. We did the cockpit side so you could just hit them with your elbows and they would fall off. Um, so he was happy enough with it. And that that got us to sort of move from the M23 to the M26. Um, but then, as I say, ground effect cars came in at the same time. So we were way behind the ball with that. And um, we were at uh, Paul Rickard at a test. I'd say there was two Lotuses. They were the quickest two cars and James and the M26. And we were sitting at dinner the night of the test and I'd taken my wife there out for a little bit of a honeymoon. It was a Paul Ricard. And we were sitting down on the beach at a restaurant and uh, the conversation came out of the ground effect cars and Teddy said, do you, want, you, know, you, do you know anything about it? And I said, well, well, it's just a wing upside down. You've got to try and make work near the ground and, and generate some downforce. So uh, I said, well, you best get back home and do something about it then. So uh, I disappeared back to England and left my wife in, in the south of France. And um, started work on a, a crashed M26 that we had from uh, earlier on in the season, and tried to build up a uh, something that resembled a ground effect car. It was a learning curve, and that was called the M26E. It ran at Brands Hatch, but you know, not successfully by any means. But it was a learning curve to get skirt systems working and you know, all that sort of stuff. You have to learn about a lot of that stuff. You you mentioned you mentioned James Hunt being concerned about how he would extricate himself from the car upside down. Yeah. Um, what was he like to work with, Gary? What, um, at that stage, he was still very, uh, he was ambitious still, he was competitive still, wasn't he? He was very, very talented. I think he was very talented at anything he did. The, the big thing was, you know, he, he didn't really want to be a racing driver. He just wanted to be, some do something successful. You know, he loved tennis, he loved, any of that sort of stuff, he was into it. But um, when we went testing and, and tried to go testing in those days, I mean, the last thing James wanted to do was drive the car. You know, he just, any excuse to get out, to get out of driving, really, because he knew that when it comes to putting in the lap, you know, he, he would do it. It would be, be okay. He wouldn't have to, all this background stuff. Obviously, when it didn't work out for him, he was disappointed in it. So I would have said he was, it was, it was what we know James Hunt as for this current day, is somebody who was living a life that he wanted to live and he needed some of that stuff to bring him the, uh, well, the air stewardesses, I think you might call it, 
because you know they were interested in him. He was a he was a, a hero, and uh, but motorists had to bring that to him because that's what he wanted out of life. So it was the best thing for him, and he, you know it was a pleasure to work for. He, he liked a bit of fun, you know. He came to my first housewarming party, him and Hottie in the stretch limo outside the house, and you know the first thing he did was organise all the parking so that people could get into the house. And, you know he, he was always stuck into things, so he was he was a nice guy. I, I enjoyed working with him, but the last thing he wanted to do was genuinely was drive a racing car. But that that's frustrating for an engineer, though, surely, isn't it? Because you do need you do need feedback from a driver when you're when you're engineering a car, don't you? You do. I mean, it's a very different Formula One today than it, than it was way back then. Um, you know, still the good teams won, but you you your your commitment was Friday morning to Sunday night, and as long as you did that right, testing was a bit of a luxury. Um, if you did your weekends and you focused on them, and you had all the stuff around you that you needed. You could manage with that. It was still, you know, it was a, a sport then. It's not, you know, it's a big business now. When you consider, I mean, McLaren was a big team at that point in time, but that big team was probably 20 people, 25 people maybe at the most. And that was, you know, making your own cars, doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so a very, very different world from this thousand that the uh, Formula One team has currently. Sure. In 79, you had uh, Alain Prost there. Uh, I'm thinking... That's a very, very different character. Yeah. Well, he tested with us at the end of 79 at Paul Ricard. Um, that was his, you know, his first outing with a Formula One car. And um, with the Marlboro backing, um, they were quite keen on American drivers. So we did a, a sort of back to back test um, at Paul Ricard between Alan Prost and, and um, Kevin Cogan. And John Watson was. You know, was the, the regular driver and so John went out in the car and did a set of time boogie time type thing and you know all quite happy and Alan got in and went out and he you know he was very 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 um careful about everything you know he left the pits and you know, no wheel spin and didn't miss gears and all that sort of stuff went round and round a few times and come in said oh we've got a bit too much understeer here whatever and we sort of fiddled with the car a little bit and then sort of come to near lunchtime and we said, okay, it's time to sort of strap, put the seatbelts a bit tighter and get on with it. And, and off he went and bish, 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 you know, four or five laps. Suddenly he was quicker than John was. And that sort of woke everybody up a bit. I thought, well, this boat's okay. Uh, but then he came in and we stopped and had lunch and then Kevin, it was Kevin Cogan's turn. So Kevin, typical, you know, he didn't learn anything from Prost. Um, out of the pits, you know, wheel spin, missed the next gear, you know, stalled or whatever. Did all the things that opposite to what Alan Prost done. So after a couple of runs, Eddie called him in and said, look, you know, I think it's you should use up that return ticket to America because I don't think it's going to work out. And because um, he came in, he was he was complaining about vibration, and none of us paid any much attention to it because it was that point in time whenever you know he didn't have a tire truck. He had a probably two sets of tires to last the whole test. Um, Anyway, after he'd gone, um, got Prost back in the car and he said, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we should put on a different set of tyres because those tyres have been you know, run a bit now. He said, oh, leave that to later on. No, he said, I think we need them. What he'd done on the, his in-lap, just before lunchtime, he had sort of slightly flat-spotted his tyres um, so that whenever Kevin got in there, he, he couldn't see very much the vibration. Well, again, he was quick, but he was also clever and 
those, those sort of things are important. You know, he, he, he did it for a reason. He knew that there was a Formula One drive available and uh, he needed to do the things right. So, no, he was very good. He was, Alan was a completely different beast. He just, you know, he was just car, car mad, car oriented. Just everything had to be about the car. Get the car better, get the car better, get the car better. And then he could do his job. Was that a challenge for you to have a, a man like that in the car? Um, because it was the first time really now, I think we're talking about you working with a, someone who went on to be, you know, a multiple world champion and has, a, has this reputation for being a perfectionist. Um, yeah, everything's a challenge. But as I said earlier, you know, you've got to take these challenges because we all, everything we do, we want to do better. We can do so. And you need all the parts of the jigsaw there. And he was, he, he became a very valuable part of that jigsaw. He, you know, he, he was the jigsaw. He was the final piece, you know. You, you always start around the outside, around the edges and get all that right with a jigsaw. And, you know, you need that last middle piece to fit it, fit in there and make it work. And, and the driver becomes that part. So I never really worked with him long enough at that point in time because um, we had a, a change of plans, my my family and me. And we head off... Um, Morris Nunn at Ensign um, had been asking me to go there to sort of become more of a more engineering oriented. Um, and I decided to do it and move up from you know, the south of England up to the Midlands to, to near Chastown where he was based at. So we decided to do that because we wanted to sort of end up doing you know, some sort of different life from the rat race. Um, so I, I moved up there in 1980 and started work with Ensign, um, Nigel Bennett. You know, they designed the car and I sort of got it built really, I suppose you call it. And it was, you know, it was a good little car. Clay Regazzoni drove it. Yeah. It started off life as a pretty good little car, but then Clay had his big accident at Long Beach, which was something that um was a bit irritating, but it, it happened and uh you know broke his back. And that was for a small team like that, that was a ma- massive blow. But uh, these things happen, motor racing is dangerous, you know. It says so in the back of the ticket, so you've got to pay attention to it sometimes. You had a big, a, a much bigger change than that by going to IndyCar. Um, why did you decide to do that, bearing in mind that you were now pretty well established as an engineer in Formula One? Yeah, it was, it was difficult because, you know, variety is a spice of life, I think you might say. Um, what happened after Clay had his accident with uh, in the ensign at Long Beach, and looking at all the all the details of what happened, you know, um, the brake pedal was broken. Um, and I had a discussion with the designers at Einstein and, you know, there was a bit of like, oh, I don't think that happened. And that happened in the accident. It didn't cause the accident. And anyway, whatever happened, happened. Um, and I decided after that, it was time for me to, to try to resurrect Anson. So for four years or so, we, we put Anson back together again in the Midlands and built built Formula 3 and Super V cars, we even built a sports car. So we did quite a lot of work at that point in time. The big problem again was money. You know, we went one year, we built three cars and they were good little cars. But um, because they were good little cars, the next year we got orders for like 20 cars. And we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't build them. You know, we couldn't even think about building them. We got them done in the end. I mean, one couple of championships, we won the Super V championship, we won the German championship, we won the Swedish Formula 3 championship. So we, we had a successful little car, but we always had money problems. And a couple of guys came in and were going to fund the team. And um, at the end of the day, they had less money than we had. Um, but they convinced us that they should 
get be, become part of the team. And then that was the reason I went to America was because um, I had been working, doing a bit of work out in America with our own Super V, with various drivers out there um, fairly successfully. And uh, then Rick Gallus wanted an engineer to come out and engineer at the weekend. So I said, why not? And they had uh, various drivers in the team. Um, Pancho Carter was very good at ovals. Yeah. Roberto Moreno and Jeff Braben were, were obviously, they were more road circuit type people, but Jeff was had a bit of an oval experience. So, you know, there's a good variety there. And it was a it was a very, very good learning curve. I mean, I think some of the engineers that's current in Formula One could, could learn a lot out there because if you engineer a car with somebody like Pancho Carter driving it around a seven, eight mile oval at San Air and the car's going past you every 18 seconds and the pits are open all the time, you know, so yellows, you just have to live on them. Um, it's it's an experience. You 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 pay attention. You know you pay attention big time. You're dizzy after the race, um, but you know it's a it's a big big learning curve. But it's a fantastic experience. It's great racing. Can, can you tell me a bit about the engineering of a car for on the short oval like that, which, as you say, is is very very quick. It's turning left all the time. Yeah. Uh, this is a whole new world. Well, you know, there's, there's a wide variety of approaches, but the reality of it is that because the car wants to turn left all, or the car has to turn left all the time, basically the driver's job is to keep it from not turning left. And then you, you, you free the car up, you let the car do its thing when you arrive at the corner. You don't actually turn it into the corner. You let it do its thing. You just stop it from not turning left. So you just ease up the load on the steering wheel and the car itself dies into the corner. So corner weights, um, cambers, you know, casters, Springs on the corners, everything can be different, but depending upon whether you, you know the car is, as they call it in America, loose, in other words, oversteery, or if it's pushing understeery, you know that's how you sort of trim the car with all the different setups you can put onto it. It's very similar to the to the high speed ovals, but obviously, Indianapolis, um, Michigan, Pocono, those are those sort of tracks. It's just a lot less downforce, but it's a very a fairly different setup. But but in reality, it's it's the same, you're trying to do the same thing, allow the driver to keep the car from turning left. And when he wants it to turn left, he just eases up his, his load. It's like taking your hands off the steering wheel going down the motorway in your car. It'll go straight on, but any car will turn left. So that's your objective, is to make it do that without having to be hard work. That's really interesting. I've never, I've, I've never really heard so much about that. Is that because, is that because you want to minimize the movement on the steering wheel because of the high speed and uh, the proximity of the scenery, if you like. Yeah, I mean, obviously the walls are very close for a start, um, but what you have to do is, is try to make sure that the car, you don't have to force the car to do anything. Um, and you or I, or anybody really, could drive the car down the straight and they are, let's say, Pocono or Phoenix, uh, um, Michigan. It's one of those sort of things that it's in the middle of the corner when you're doing 200 plus mile an hour, and the wall is about 10 feet away, that you don't want it to go wrong. So that's where the, the car needs to be comfortable, get the car comfortable at that point in time in the corner. So, you, you know, arriving at the corner, as I always say, with any racing car, arriving at the corner for the driver and giving them the confidence to turn the steering wheel is where the driver gets his confidence. That's the first step. And if the car is, is good to him at that point, then he'll take the car through the corner faster. 
And uh, end day, it's one of those sort of things, or any oval, one of those sort of things. When you arrive at the corner, you just want to ease up the load that you got on the steering wheel. It's keeping it from turning left and just let it turn itself. Um, and then you know the car wants to do that. You're not forcing it to do that. The car wants to do that. And as I say, going down the straights at the time, you're, uh, you're keeping the car turned, turned left. So it's more theoretically mid-corner mid in the ovals. There is less load in the, in the less torque in the steering column, for example, than there is going down the straight because just the car wants to turn left. So yeah. there's, you're not making the car turn left. And that's what you've got to do with the setup is try to get to that point where the car, you're a passenger in the car through the corner because it wants to do that. Um, and all you're trying to do is keep it, trying to keep it straight between corner, corner to corner. The engineer-driver relationship there, I'm assuming, is really important because he's got to feel total confidence. Yes. Um, you know, you don't, you don't get a second chance at, at sort of heading into a, a, a corner at uh, 230 mile an hour if it goes wrong. You know, so that's that. You're, you're, you're a passenger. Um, now, not all those ovals are at that speed, but, you know, you take Indianapolis, Michigan, Pocono, they are. And and when it does go wrong, it's it's an airplane accident at that speed. So it's it's something that yes, you can build up to, but the car changes dramatically as you build up to it. So you've got to try to get to the point where the driver has the confidence to take it into the corner, and then from there on in, if once you get through that stage, then you'll trim the car and trim the car and trim the car. So instead of arriving at the corner at two hundred thirty, you might be arriving at the corner two hundred forty. So that's that's where you get that last bit out of it, and it's very very difficult because you know half a millimeter ride height, um, yeah. a little bit of wing, a touch of gurney flap, a little bit of cross weight, massive massive things change the car dramatically. So you need to be really really careful that you uh, you build up to it slowly, but if you build up to it too slowly, the car will change whenever you do actually build up to it quickly. So you've got to be really careful of that stepping across that line. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. As I say, some of the engineers in Formula One currently could do with a, a lesson in IndyCar and I'd stop them thinking this is, this is easy. It ain't easy at all. Back in Europe, um, you took Mar uh, Roberto Moreno to the um, Formula 3000 Championship. Yeah. You, were, you, you won the championship with him. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was always interested in... Moreno, to me, always seemed um, an incredibly talented driver who somehow somehow never really quite made it. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about working with him? Yeah, I, I would agree 100% with what you say, Rob. But, you know, very, very talented, exceptional to work with from an engineering point of view because he is, the feeling he had was, was second to none in the car. And sometimes, actually, I think that was his downfall. He wasn't one of these drivers that laid it on the line. He, he needed, like the Alan Prost of what we talked about earlier, you know, he would want to work on the car, work on the car, and work on the car. And that year we won the championship, for example, we went to Poe. And I'd, you know, we'd been to Poe the year before with, we had a, um, a Rolt at that time uh, in Bromley Motorsport. And Corroyser was driving, who was a good little driver and all that stuff. But, you know, you go out and you, you, you go around Poe and you, you learn Poe. It's like Monaco. You need to do some laps. Roberto would drive out of the pits, go around, come into the pits. Now it's got this, got this, you know, it's got a bit too much understeer. It's the traction's not great, whatever. Every lap we were sort of optimizing. Near the end of the first the session before qualifying, I said, look, you know, it's time to do a lap time. Why? And I said, because, you know, 
would just love to see a lap time. He said, yeah, but the difference in what I'm feeling and doing a lap time is driving down a straight line. That's all the pit straight is. It's a straight line. He said, I can do that anytime. So I would rather spend the time optimizing the car. So, uh, okay, you can't really argue with that. He'd been there before. He'd done a good job. Um, and he, you know, out in the first lap of qualifying, put it on pole. And you know, I couldn't argue with him after that. And then, you know, he won, led the race, won the race. So getting the car right is very important to him. But there's other circuits where that really didn't work as well as it, should, as it could have done. But I think that was his downfall was the fact he was so, so into the engineering side of it and, and making the car as good as possible. Uh, it really was, you know, that was important to him. So I think he missed the boat a little bit by not just getting out there and wringing the car's neck at every opportunity he could. And that's interesting, yeah, because because Poe is um Poe is quite a challenging uh track, isn't it? It's got I mean, yes, it's got, as you mentioned, the the long straight past the pits, but it's very, very fiddly, some of it, isn't it? It's it's which I mean I assume the you need you need to have the car pretty spot on for those yes i mean there's areas where you know the the, the um circuit topography they the surface of the circuit you know monaco has got a lot of camber chains across its across the track but that's got nothing to pull um you know you if you have the road, the right height row you can sit in the middle on the skid underneath the car um with no wheels on the ground so it's one of those some of the circuits which it really is demanding and at that point in time with the with three from three thousand, we we ran cross ply tires as well. The thing about cross ply tires was that the the with speed they grew, um, and that meant you could run much lower ride heights at low speed. I mean, basically, if you monitored the ride height, which we we didn't do very well, but we tried our best. You actually ran a very stable ride height all the way around the circuit, just from the fact the tires grew at high speed. When you had more downforce on the car, tire got bigger, and at low speed. Um, at low speed, that you know the, the car was closer to the ground. Now we come to, uh, I guess the, th the the part that everybody remembers. Um, how could we forget the Jordan? How did Eddie Jordan convince you to come and design a Formula One car? Well, it was um, a strange thing, really. I suppose. I mean, I'd known Eddie for many years. We we competed against each other when I when I had my Anson F three cars in the early seven early 80s sorry um he was very good at taking my sponsors um but you know we had a good little car so it was all right we got to know each other quite well and then um in 1988 obviously we won the Formula 3000 championship and you know johnny herbert was in the reynard which would have done a fantastic job and the works car as such he broke his legs at brown's hatch um, so, but for for eighty nine, I'd never worked in a drawing office um, with qualified engineers. Everything I'd done, I've taught myself or learned from whatever um, from good people that sort of helped me. And I went to work for Reynard in nineteen eighty nine, designed their Form three thousand car, and that sort of led me to at the end of that the end of that year. Um, Eddie approached me at Birmingham Super Prix. First of all, and said, "Look, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put it together to build a Formula One car. Would you, would you come and join us? If I do, and I said, well, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, and I thought it was a joke. I thought I'd never an Irishman. You know, I thought I'd never hear of me again. And then just prior to Christmas '89, my phone started ringing, and it was Eddie. You know, yeah, I think I've got enough money to put a, together a prototype. You know, well, do you want to come and design it for us? No, no, I don't. 
I called my wife a few times, convinced her to talk to me. Um, and I told them that I needed at least three of us, you know, um, because it's, it's not a one-man job. Um, and I said, okay, yeah, right. So two of the guys that worked with me at Reynard, um, Mark Smith and Andrew Green, um, I talked to them. Um, they had to give a month's notice. I had given mine because I was going to go and work for Eddie. And I, Eddie said, oh, yeah, you've got a drawing office. Everything's ready to go, blah, blah, blah. So I got there. I think it was the, the beginning of February. Um, there was no drawing office. There was no nothing. There was a mezzanine and a builder bloke um, who did Eddie's DIY stuff. Um, and away we went. We, we sort of put up a wall or two here and there. And I spent the, the month before Andrew and Mark could come um, sort of get, you know, getting all the catalogs and bearing books and, you know, all that sort of stuff composted, you know, all the, all the catalogs you need for all the supplies of stuff. Setting up a few contacts for, for manufacturing bits and pieces um, because we weren't going to get the car manufactured 100% outside. Um, got that all ready. So whenever Andrew and Mark came, we had three drawing boards and a big layout board and the way we went. And um, yeah, it was it was very interesting because as I say, Andrew sort of set into the suspension area. Mark um, started designing the gearbox and engine installation. The two of them met up mechanically and I, I schemed up the, the car and did the wind tunnel work down in Southampton University. I never ever thought the car would get built. I genuinely never thought it would happen. And then I think it must've been about August, Eddie came in and said, I think we're on, you know, to the, I think we've got, got a couple of sponsors coming in. I think we can you get the car built now, uh, which is what we did. This was an incredible achievement, bearing in mind that you built this Grand Prix car completely from scratch. And as soon as it was launched, it, 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 quite frankly, it caused quite a sensation because Apart from anything else, it was a beautiful looking car. And in some ways, the rear of the car was a, a little bit ahead of its time, wasn't it? That sort of the way it was wasted in is, I mean, I know yeah. that's layman's language, but. I've always said that, you know, you, you try to understand stuff. You try to make sure that what you're trying to build, you have a, a clue as to what you're trying to get out of it. I met, I met up with John Watson, who had worked with obviously at McLaren through the years. Um, and in the very early days at Brabham at the British Grand Prix in 1990. And John stopped, no, you know, you're building a Formula One car with Eddie, you know, what do you guys know about Formula One? You know, what you think? I said, well, all I can do is try to build a car that's driver friendly. We're going to have to do pre-qualifying. Um, no idea who's going to be driving it. But if we have a car that's driver friendly at eight o'clock on a Friday morning and we have to go and try to do the best job we can, um, It'll be it'll be possible if the car is too too tricky to drive, then you know we'll make lots of mistakes. And he said, "Oh yeah, that's not easy to do." And I said, "No, I know it's not easy to do, but if that's what your your objective is, then you know you 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 might achieve it." So whenever it came to testing the car the first time, I said to Eddie, "Look, why don't we get another Irishman? Why don't we get John to do the shakedown test?" And after about three laps, John came into the pits and he said, "You know, this car is exactly what you said back in July." He said, "That's what it feels like." So I love a car like this. It's sort of got a docile front end, but the rear is really secure on the brake and turning in and all that stuff. So that was nice. And then Andrea de Cesaris joined us and then Bertram Gascio. Um, the first big test, really, I think, was Paul Ricard. I think it was the beginning of January. 
And I remember having work by Alan Prost at, uh, at McLaren. We were in the garage, you know, we had these little green toolboxes from Halfords. Um, and there was probably about four of us, I think. And Alan Prost and uh, Fiorio, the team manager at that time at Ferrari, standing outside the garage, looking in with Prost saying to him, how can they do that? Because we'd, we'd been out for our first day and we were quicker than they were. Obviously, it was fuel and all that sort of stuff. It didn't really matter. But at the end of the day, just the fact that it was a nice looking car, looked as though it was quite quick. Um, and Prost shaking his head with the team manager from Ferrari saying, how can they do that? So quite, quite good fun. It's a great story. And one of the reasons it's a great story is because, is because the car had huge potential. I mean, let's just take, you know, as the obvious example, um, the Grand Prix at Spa, when Eddie somehow managed to get Michael Schumacher into the car. So now, now you by this time, you knew you had a, a pretty good car, and now you've got Schumacher. What do you remember about that weekend, Gary? Well, it was one of those sort of strange weekends. Obviously, we were we were still a bit stunned by what happened to Bertram, um, because none of us ever thought they'd end up in prison. Um, and you know, the Schumacher thing then unfolded for for various reasons. And you know, he came to the workshop to the at, at Silverstone, get a seat fit and all that sort of stuff done. And I remember sitting talking to him and saying, "Oh, you know, it's great um, Spa. Obviously, you know Spa from the sports car days." He said, no, I've never driven it. I said, I've never, I've never been there. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. Um, then anyway, once he drove the car at Silverstone, you knew that he was he was either going to bin it or, or be quick. Um, and it was just quick. It's fantastic car control. And again, because the car was like it was, it was a sort of docile car, it suited him to, for his first day out. I think if he had, you know, because there was talk of him driving the arrows or whatever it was, or footwork or something, that point in time. Um, and I think if he got in another car, it wouldn't have been the same debut by any means. Not because we were better than they were, but just because the car suited a new, a new boy in time, getting into it and having to wring its neck with very little experience. Um, so that was good. But then obviously, you know, we were hampered by budget and we ended up getting hand-me-down stuff from, for example, AP. Um, there was this, this clutch hub, which was an aluminium clutch hub, which was lighter. And uh, we had a the, the Cosworth HB engine, which had a bit of a problem in the back of the crankshaft. We had to run a, a lighter weight clutch than you could, than you should do on a Formula One car. And obviously, this aluminium hub that we got as a hand down from AP because nobody else wanted them because they had made a new titanium one, which was would stand the heat better. Nobody else wanted them, so they they give us what some of them and. Spa being an uphill start, a single plate clutch which got very hot, an aluminium hub which to take the drive from the, the plates into the gearbox. Uh, just and an experience from Michael. He sort of did a very good start and then at the at the hairpin had to do a sort of another start. And that was just too much heat for the clutch and just killed the clutch. So it was one of those sort of situations where part of it was because of budget, part of it was because of naivety on our, our behalf and part of us because of an experience on Michael's behalf. So all that combined to uh, his race being about 200 meters. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you look upon maybe one of these people who, who never looks back, but um, do you look upon that time at Jordan in in some ways as a as a huge lost opportunity, bearing in mind how good the car was. You had Schumacher, albeit that wasn't going to be a permanent thing. But had you had better finances, it it could have been something really great, could it not? Yeah, I think it could. Um, the big the big problem really is the fact that I I wouldn't really say the finances held us back dramatically. I think it was just our experience and our 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 ability to sort of set ourselves a target and focus on it. And the, the, the finances would have helped that. We had a target set there. You know, we had stupid things. Monaco were running sick and the throttle cable broke. Um Emily, we had a gear selector break break, and we were knocking on the points as well. And remember, in, that, in those years, you only got points to sixth. You know, you, you you could have a you could have a fantastic season, finish seventh in every Grand Prix and have zero at the end of the season. So, you know, scoring points was no easy task. And obviously we scored our first points in Montreal with the fourth and fifth, which was fantastic. And Monaco's always been been kind to Jordan in a way. You know, I think I think we finished seventh, second in ninety-seven, we finished second and third in ninety-five. Um, so we always had a you know good run there because we always built an efficient car, but I think going back to '91, I think we we it was near the end of the season before we sort of felt that we were, before I felt we were actually in a reasonable control of what was going on. But at that point in time, we were financially strapped, um, and you know '92 was '92 and '93 just was survival. You know, it was just a matter of, of making sure we were still there. I'm just going to take you back in time for a moment because. Um... These podcasts uh, we do them with our partner Scalextric, and I, I like I like to ask people: um, When you were a kid, did you have Scalextric? Did you did you uh, race your mates on in any way? Yeah, no, I did have Scalextric, and actually, interesting you bring that up because the one corner that sticks in my mind that relates to Scalextric is coming out of Peratella in Mexico. And that was the first, we scored our points, first points the race before in Montreal. But standing there through that bank corner at the beginning of the race and watching, you know, a Williams or whatever it was, a Williams or Ferrari, or someone, someone else or someone else, and a Jordan coming out of that corner, flat out. That was like Scalextric to me. That was just what it was. It was just like, this thing's on rails. It was the first time that I realised that we were really racing with the big boys. That was the first race where, you know, 
it's so visual the exit of that corner and it was just amazing and as I say it relates to Scholastic because it is like it's on reels that's a great image I tell you because that, that's what it was like with Scholastic wasn't it you yeah. kept your thumb down yeah, yeah, yeah. And the car held on. <laughs> yeah, no, no. no, it did. And, and that's what, through that, that corner, that was part of it. You know, you, you, once you committed to the corner, that was it. You, your, your throttle was where it was, the speed was where it was, and you just hoped you got to the end of it because it was a mighty corner at that point in time. And it's just, as I say, it just relates to Scalextric all over again. This podcast is supported by Scalextric. Listeners can claim 10% off all Scalextric products by visiting www.scalextric.com and using the code RACE10. That's R-A-C-E in capital letters, followed by figure 10, RACE10, at checkout. This offer is valid until the 30th of September this year and cannot be used in conjunction with any other offer. A full list of terms and conditions is available on the Scalextric website. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Rubens Barrichello because yeah. uh, I spent quite a lot of time when he was in in Formula Three, and he was very nervous. He was he was he was a very nervous character, quite quite jumpy. I often wondered, for such an apparently sensitive young man, he he became a good Grand Prix driver. So I wondered what he was like to work with what what when he when he was with Jordan. Um. It was very good. You know, he joined us at, a, at the end of a bad time, I suppose you might say. We, were, we had a, a lot of struggles. Um, so it was a very difficult time for somebody to join us and hope for success. But from the first day he drove with us, I got on really well with him. Um, and he sort of adopted me as, as his second dad. And 93, 94, I engineered his car as well as, you know, was technical director there. So I, we got to understand each other very, very well. And uh, I suppose I believed in him and he believed in me. And I, I'm a big believer, as you said earlier, in, in relationships between drivers and engineers. You know, at that point in time, you, you know, we, we didn't have all the data in the world. You didn't, um, you didn't bring the car into the pits and plug in the umbilical cord and get out X, you know, gigabytes of, of rubbish and try to analyze it, the driver was your your tool. He told you what he wanted, and I believed in that. And Rubens and I worked together well at that, and he would tell me what was going on with the car by the time he was entering the pit lane as such. He'd be on the radio. This is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And I would have some um, some remedies, I would hope remedies for it, and by the time he stopped in the garage and said, look, do this, do this, do this, I'll do that, 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 that. Yeah, okay, um, leave the middle one out, let's do the other two, because I'm not quite sure, and away we go. So you had this quick reference between each other uh, that worked very, very well, very well. And um, it's one of those sort of situations, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's, it's a good place to be. And uh, he was one of those drivers, like Roberto Moreno, I had exactly the same as Roberto. Um, it's, it's just one of those relationships where... It just blends from day one, and away you go. And it's it's fun to be part of. And of course, of course, drivers drivers like that make your life so much. I was going to say easier, but they make your life so much more straightforward because you're not getting too much information. You're getting the information you want. Well, yeah, you're you're getting the information you want. The thing is that you're you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. I suppose the best way of putting it. You know, if you take drivers, I've had various drivers in the cars. Um, Rubens is one of those drivers who's he's a fingertip driver. You know, you go around the track with him in a road car, he's just fingertipping it. 
you go around with some other drivers, they're white knuckling it. And the difference is night and day. You know, they, they, end up, they end up doing the same lap time. That's all okay. But one of them is just a, a gorilla in the car. And the other one is, you know, just, just letting the car do the work. And that's something you have to do. If you're going to report back as to what the car is doing, you have to make sure that you're not inflicting half of the problems. You have to allow the car to do its job and then come back with the, the problems and then find the solutions. And that way, I think Rubens was, was excellent. Mm. He, would, he allowed the car to do its work. And he just give it a bit of a, a bit of a helping hand as to where he wanted it to go. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, you you decided to leave Jordan and you went to uh, the team that Jackie Stewart and his family put together with the Ford Motor Company. Yeah. Um, the the obvious the obvious question really there is is why why did you do that? Because um, you'd had quite a lot of success at Jordan, honestly. Yeah. And it had gone from, you know, an empty shed to... Uh, yeah. No, it, it, it was probably one of those... I, I tend to make spur-of-the-moment decisions on, on silly things. We, we had a good 97, let's say. The car was pretty good. We, we you know, had the odd podium, and um, we should have won a couple of races probably, but we didn't. Uh, we had the Peugeot engine, which was at that point in time its third year with us. And we had worked very hard to try to make the, the engine work with Persia to get the engine to be a, a better package, uh, which I think we succeeded in doing. Um, and then at the end of 97, you know, they were they were going to go to Prost. So uh, 98, we moved to the Mugen Honda. Um, so it was another engine for us. Um, the regulations changed quite a bit and the, the track width and, you know, all that sort of stuff, tire, um, tread, um, the roof tires and stuff. So we, we ended up, you know, it was a whole new car package. Um, it was a new engine installation, a new working relationship with the engine people. And 98, we started the season poorly. And it wasn't as though it was a black and white reason. It's a bit like Mercedes, you know, last year, I suppose you might say. You know, everything we'd done to the car meant that it was theoretically a better car than, than the 97 car. It had, you know, relatively as much downforce uh, for the, with the changes. It had, it was lighter, it was stiffer, it was everything. But the engine itself was way down on the, the Peugeot engine. And the car, from my point of view, the, the driver didn't like the car. The car didn't make sense to the driver, neither to, neither to Damon or, or Ralph. Ralph would muscle a car and, and get a lap out of it, but Damon, you know, with his experience, didn't want to be doing that. Um, so that was, you know, during the beginning of the season, it was, I had four trips to Japan after each of the first four races to try and work with Honda to get them to recognize that what they had wasn't good enough. I was trying to also identify the problems that we had with our car, with the car. And it was quite strange because I instigated some aerodynamic tests um, after the fourth race of the season. And I, I sort of, I've always liked to try to, make sure the guys know the answer before they ask the question. And then if the answer you get for that question isn't the same as what the answer you think should be, then you question why. And the answers we got to this was very different from the answer I thought we should be having. So we researched it a bit and found out the reasons why it was happening and set about fixing it, which meant new front wing end plates, new side pods, you know, fair amount of change around the front, uh, the front wheel architecture. And, it was all going to be ready for, for uh, the British Grand Prix. Uh, and 
the, my last trip to to Honda, which you know it was moving Honda bags, but it was really Honda built the engine. Um, they sort of bought into the fact that they were way down in power, and it was quite strange because we're sitting around this big meeting table talking about it, and one guy in his white um, uniform got up, headed off, went to the dyno cell, came back with this dyno report as such, punched in the kilowatts and punched in the figures and said, ah, exactly the power you say we have. He said, we thought we had about 40 horsepower more because it just didn't try to relate to it. So they instigated a huge amount of differences and I had to stay that night and go through with them in the morning what we could do and, you know, because it meant new exhaust systems, new airbox, new lots of stuff, new radiators. They were changing the engine architecture dramatically, all for the British Grand Prix. Um, so everything was coming for the British Grand Prix. But during that period of me trying to get my head around the fact that we didn't build a bad car, we just didn't build as good a car as we thought, the management, and I'm not, I'm not putting Eddie into this, the management at Jordan didn't put their arm around my shoulder when I needed it most. And I decided that on the way to that, I decided, look, no, I'm going to make sure this stuff gets on the car. I'm going to make sure it works. And then I'm out here. Um, so we did that. British Grand Prix came up. We scored our first point. It's not much, but the drivers liked the car. We got about 20 horsepower from, uh, from Honda. Um, the drivers liked what the car felt like. And I went on to Eddie on the, on the Monday morning and said, Eddie, I'm out here. Sorry. And why, you know, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay. Blah, blah, blah. I said, look, this is the reason. I'm sorry, but this is the reason. And there was a guy outside Eddie's office, which was doing a trimming a tree with a chainsaw. And he went up this window and gave this bloke the biggest Irish bollock and you've ever given anybody in your life because of the noise. But that was the reason for leaving. And I didn't leave with a job to go to. I left with nothing to go to because I didn't believe in, you know, covering your tail before you decided what you wanted to do. So I left with nothing. And um, that's the sort of development to go to church. I did visit Prost to see because of the, they asked me to go and see them, but that was a very um, French team, and with Peugeot coming in, being a bloody nightmare, which it turned out to be. And uh, I met with Jackie after Spa and made me an offer. And, um, I must say that my year 19, uh, 1999 Stuart Grand Prix was a pleasure to work with somebody like Jackie Stewart. He was just such a people's person you know he just knew everybody's name and the kid's name and if the kid had a cold last week and every i think it was every tuesday after a grand prix we used to walk around the factory him and i and you know good or bad didn't really matter but speak to everybody about stuff and uh just you know he, he just was a people's person he's a remarkable man remarkable absolutely remarkable man yeah another driver Tony herbert Johnny does a column in Motorsport magazine, so we might want to tread a bit carefully here, or not, as the case may be. He's, he's a lovely bloke, but he's a tough competitor, isn't he? Yes, he's a very tough competitor. I mean, you know, that accident in, at Brands Hatch in 88, um, it, it's hard to say it ruined his career. Um, it didn't do any good for the next five years of it, I suppose, for sure. And then he sort of built his way out of it a little bit, but not to the extent that... Uh, he, he would have been a 88 that flowed for him the way it should have done. And, you know, the offers, the drives had come that he should have done for 89, 90 and so on. Now, I'm, I'm saying that you've still got to make all the right decisions, be in the right place at the right time, all that stuff. Who knows? But I think Johnny was was somebody who was, you know, an excellent driver, very competitive. And whenever 
whenever I got with them in 99. It hadn't faded away, but it wasn't at its peak. You know, he, he won a Nuremberg ring in, in adverse conditions with us and made the right decisions, drove well, everybody else was crashing. That's life, you know. He, the, the thing is that the lights go out and the checkered flag waves, and in between that, you can do what you want. And uh, He was very good at keeping it, keeping it uh, on the road. Should he have had better success? I think one of the things that I would say, and I'm not being critical of him by any means here, was that uh, during practice sessions, we get ribbons, you know, during you know the the practice session before qualified ribbons would be fourth quickest or fifth quickest and Johnny would be sixth or seventh or whatever. Um, go out for qualifying ribbons would be first round would be fourth quickest or third maybe, and Johnny would be seventeenth. And I never really understood why that would be. He seemed to need the laps to get the confidence to to push to that limit. By the end of a practice session, you you were able to do that. But it, it didn't come easy in qualifying for him. I think it was Monza whenever we sort of saw a bit of a breakthrough. We had a, a different differential, um, got an active differential working. And that made that made a lot of progress for Johnny. Very little for Rubens, but a lot of progress for Johnny. So whenever he was fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever in, in practice before qualifying, he could now go out and be fifth or sixth or seventh in, in qualifying. That made a big swap for him. Rubens would still be doing a good, a good job. And, you know, again, it was the same old deal. We weren't a massive team, so we made mistakes. We, we weren't as consistent by any means as we should have been, and that was both driver and and, uh, and team. But it, was, it wasn't it was bad, and that led to the, the Jaguar or Ford takeover as such. Just coming back to Johnny for briefly, um, he obviously had this, you know, God-given talent, like some of these drivers do. So did he get... Did he drill down into the detail of the car, or or did he just, or, or could he drive round stuff? He was good at driving round stuff because I think he was naturally talented. Um, again, as I say, Rubens was very good at being uh, going in depth with the car and trying to drag the best out of the car before before he would, you know, put it on the line. But Rubens was also very good at putting it on the line. You know, he he knew when it came to it. And I think if you look back at '94 with the Jordan when he was on pole and Spa in uh, half dry conditions and um, Nuremberg ring when he was on pole in the wet for, for Stuart. Those are the type of conditions that I'm saying, give him the chance, just give him that nip of a chance of doing something. And he knows the, he knows the pressure of doing it. He can go out there and, 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 and bring it back for you. I don't think Johnny was quite there with that. I think Johnny was, was the car good, uh, equal set of circumstances where you didn't have to go out and feel the grip on the track or anything. You could just go and drive the wheels off it. I think Johnny was was pretty good, but it took him a long time to get in terms of what Rubens could do with that, the Stuart in 99. It took him a long time to do that. But I think part of that was the fact that Johnny would have to build up a little bit and get that confidence, whereas Rubens could you know, go out the pits and, and nail it more or less immediately. And that's really what happened to Rubens in... in, in uh, Qualifying in Imola in '94 in Jordan, when it made his big crash on the Friday, you know he was flat tacked on the first lap through that last chicane, and, and um, you know a little bit wide, clipped the curb, it's a hole in the road, and he's a passenger. So, yeah, there's 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 times you get away with it, and there's times you don't. But you know, the, of the drivers that I think really, really are committed to everything. It's the ones that can go out there on that first lap and really wring its neck. And I think we see that with Max Verstappen currently. Yeah. You know, there's never a session where he's not nigh on fastest on that first lap. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's still it's still both true.
not sure what to say about Jaguar, really. The Stuarts, I mean, OK, they decided to stop and they sold the team to Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, and on paper, on paper, the Jaguar, looked, it looked like it had potential, that team, but it, it just never, it never got going. It never worked, did it, Gary? No, it never worked. Um, you know, and I'll tell you sort of some of the reasons. I mean, if you take the sale, I was... I was um, in California. We used the Swift Wind Tunnel in Los Angeles, just outside of Los Angeles, uh, with Stuart and, and with Jaguar. And I was there for a test just before the, um, the Montreal Grand Prix. Um, and Jackie phoned me up and said, oh, you know, what are you up to? And I told him, and he said, oh, when are you coming up to Montreal? And I said, well, it was Tuesday night or Wednesday night or something. Um, and he said, why don't you come up tonight? He said, I'm in Detroit. Why don't you come up to Detroit and we can have dinner? Um, and I said, nah, you know, I'm busy. I'm ready. I said, no, you should come up. Honestly, you should come up. I'll arrange all the flights. So uh, the secretary called me. These are the flights. All they get goes up there, picked up, taken to the hotel. There's a three-piece suit hanging in the wardrobe and a pair of shoes because I was obviously just a team gear with me and stuff. See you at dinner, for dinner at seven. Um, so I went down for dinner at seven. There's Jackie, Helen, Enzel Ford. So there's Jackie, Helen, myself, and Enzel Ford and myself. And he said, I just wanted you at first to know that we, we sold a company to, to Ford. Um, and he said, I think, you, you know, just would like you to know about it. So go, oh, thank you very much. You know, that's, that's amazing. Now, that's the difference between what happened at the end of the season when the company was sold and Ford took over. You know, it was, it was like a light switch went off. It was all the same company. But, you know, whereas I, I just said there, I was in a, a wind tunnel test in California. Um, I got banned from doing that. You know, I was told by the, the bosses that I should not be doing, I should be managing. I'm not a manager. I, I, I've got dirt under my nails. You know, I, I like getting dirt under my nails. I, I get stuck in. That's my job. You understand stuff and get stuck in. And that really was where I saw the problem. And, you know, the top management joined us on an engineering meeting at, at Jaguar, as it was then, uh, you know, at the beginning of Jaguar life, and uh, walked into this meeting with about 20 people there and said, you know, you either do it forward way or we'll get somebody else at will. Now, that's that's motivation for you, you know. And uh, as the year went by, I just, you know, lost interest a bit, really. And by the end of the season, I uh, had a big barney with the, one of the head guys um, in Malaysia um, because we just got to the point of actually behind their back, identifying and fixing the problem, which should have been fixed probably by race four. Um, but no, wasn't allowed to do it. And we'd done some stuff, um, made some P34 packers for the diffuser, you know, body filler packers for the diffuser, stuck them in there and it transformed the car. So, you know, simple things really, and but they didn't see it that way. They, they were Ford, they were the might of Ford. And, you know, it was really, really a horrible place to, a horrible job um, because you knew the problems, but you couldn't go about fixing them. And then we had good guys, you know, it's not as though the, the guys were, were, were wrong, but you, need, you needed to pull it together and you needed to bring the message back. And it was sort of like your hands were tied. So, yeah, I didn't enjoy it. And when I got a phone call from a, from a certain needle wrestler to tell me my job was, wasn't necessary anymore, I thought, okay, bet down with that because we could have got out of this, but Never mind. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a great story, is it? Actually, and it may, maybe it's, it's an example, isn't it? In fact, of 
how huge multinational companies, they're not racing teams. Yep. I mean, if you look at Red Bull, for example, it's it's a racing team, isn't it? That's what it is. It doesn't do anything else. I, I mean, I know it makes drinks, but but yeah, yeah. it's a racing team. And and I think from the way you've described it, 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 it once it gets corporate like that, it doesn't work, does it? Well, the, the big problem I had was really there was probably underneath the top management at, at uh, Ford, there were eight other sort of second line managers and they were all just looking after their pension. They'd, 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 they'd say yes to anything up, down, you know, they'd agree with the top management and it didn't matter whether it was black and white lies, they'd agree. And you couldn't get through that, you know, because they were, they were the ones that were believed. They were there every day. They were, they were chatting about how, you know, Eddie Irvine would qualify 12th or 14th or whatever it was, you know, how that's really, really ridiculous and how this is, this is the might of Ford and, they, and he should be on pole position. And yet you say to him, well, well what, what do you do to fix it? Well, that's not our job. You, know, you have to pass that on down. But then will you let me try to get on with it? No, 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 you have to pass it on down as well. So you, you sort of end up with, you have this group of people, nobody's any responsibility. And it's, it's, it is corporate, corporate management. There just seems to be that sort of pass it down, and hope that somebody along the line picks it up and does something about it. And I could tell you some horror stories, but uh, this is not the time or place for them. Well, I don't mind a few horror stories another time. Maybe. <laughs> um, look, let, we're we're out of, we're nearly out of time, Gary. But um, 2003, you went back to Eddie, back to Jordan. Yeah. Um, sometimes people say you should never go back. Uh, you did. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, was that a good decision? Well, after the Jordan, after the Jaguar thing in 2000, um, I, I worked for Reynard in America, um, looking after the IndyCar people, you know, sort of technical director in America, uh, going back and forward. And uh, that was a good experience again, because I had IndyCar experience, I had Formula One experience, and I think the teams, the teams and I got on quite well. We did some developments, and it was a year where it was all getting a bit high pressure for Reynard, and we ended up winning the championship via Penscape, but still... Castro Neves still ran, um, you know, the, the, the Reynard spec car as opposed to the Penske spec car in the last races and, you know, he won the championship. So we did do good things. And then I spoke to Eddie at the uh, American Grand Prix in Indianapolis. And he said, look, you know, can we do something about getting you back again? And I said, well, I don't want to go back as technical director, but I'll go back, you know, I'll, I'll think about coming back. I want to come back to England anyway, uh, full time because of family and all that stuff. Um, and I said I would come back and sort of look after the racing side of things. So I didn't go back to do the same job. Um, they had, unfortunately, during my period away, was probably their most financially sound period, where they had very good money from uh, Deutsche Post and B&H um, and all that sort of stuff. And that was really why Eddie asked me back, because that money was starting to diminish a bit. When I, when I didn't go back, was, uh, I went back at the, uh, for 2000 and, uh, 2002, started back. And my first uh, job, I got called into the office and there was a guy there from Deutsche Post and Eddie. And they said, um, you know, we need to cut back our overhead a bit. You know, I said, well, I'm just taking the job. So you're going to slack me now, you know, one day in. I said, no, we want you to look at uh, the amount of people we've got and, and who, who we could let go. So my first day there was, was not a good day because you had to cut back. And so I became Mr. Hatchet Man, I suppose. Yeah, well, there's a, it's um, it's one of those difficult things because whenever you have to do that and reduce the staff, you know, you know you're going in the wrong direction. 
So it was one of those uh, situations where 2020, uh, 2002, 2003 was trying to see whether or not we could survive again enough to pull in some decent. And by the mid part of 2003, we just, you know, it, it didn't look to me as though it was going to happen. So um, again, I, I decided to move on and, and let them get on with it. It's just, it's difficult because going back to the company you worked for before and, and also the, the company you had built from nothing, you know, as I say, there, was, there wasn't even a drone office. Um, the, the company had changed dramatically and not all for the right reasons, I suppose you could say. But, it was, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was just one of those sort of situations. Eddie was fighting to keep it, keep it alive. Um, but then even he got tired of it and obviously went up for sale. Um, so I started doing a little bit with, uh, with Delara because they had a deal with uh, Midland to build a Formula One car. And it was actually me that suggested, instead of Delara building an F1 car, why didn't Midland have a chat with Eddie, who wanted to get rid of a Formula One car? Maybe the two could meet in the middle and uh, everybody would be happy. Um, but yeah, it, did, it didn't suit me. And I didn't really, um, I wasn't at home with the Midland people as management was concerned. I'd been through the, the Ford management and I didn't need another set of people coming in that knew nothing about it, uh, trying to tell me what to do. So time was to uh, hang up the pencil. I want to ask you uh, finally, Gary, for your take on Formula One today. I thought these regulations, when they come in, it would be a bit, uh, be a bit basic, but actually it's turned out quite interesting because, you know, from my experience of ground effect way back in the, in the 70s, trying to sort of come up with ground effect, um, which you had to do, I mean, all the... the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that was all, that was what it was all about. Whether you had an F3 car, a Super V car, a Formula 1 car, whatever, you had to generate downforce from underneath the car. So it's been quite an interesting time for me to see how people went about that. And um, as, we, as we know, looking at the grid, it's not simple. And uh, I think Adrian knew his knowledge from way back in my time um, with Indy cars and uh, various other formulas through that, those years. Um, has, has bowed them pretty well. But I agree with you at the minute. The only thing I would say is the cars are too big. And, and you take, you know, it's highlighted at Monaco, but but never mind that, it's highlighted everywhere. The cars are too big and they're too heavy. And I made a suggestion a while ago where I would, if it was me, I would sort of hit the 10% button. And I'd say, right, let's just make the car 10% smaller and 10% lighter. And that's a big challenge. But if you looked at one of these cars, there is so much stuff on them. Yeah. And they talk about they talk about safety. Yeah, okay, safety is important. But there is so much actual stuff on them that you could get rid of. And it would mean you wouldn't have that, you know, two bucket loads of, of, of uh, data. You might just have one bucket load at the end of the day. But you'd have to prioritize stuff. And, you know, I think the challenge for the weight has got to be hard. It's got to be difficult to do. You can't just complain to um, the FIA that, oh, we can't meet the weight limit. You know, you have to throw some of the stuff away that's around the car. It doesn't have to be there. Um, and obviously then, you know, the, the, weight, the weight formula will define itself. There will be cars that will be lighter than other cars. That's the way it's always been. You know, that, that is the challenge of Formula One. As I say, my simple term would be just hit the 10% button for 2026. Um, and then go ahead. You know, that brings it down by... The minute that bring it down by 79 kilograms, nice round figure, say 80 kilograms or whatever, 
um, brings it down to sort of 720 rounded up, which is still 100 kilograms heavier than when I was last involved in the design of a Formula One car. So you can do a hell of a lot of safety within 100 kilograms. And weight is not necessarily always the best for safety. You know, the, you just got to be careful here. So um, I would I'd set the challenge pretty high. I'd make the car 10% narrower, 10% shorter, 10% less overhang. Just it's a simple thing to do. You know, it, has to, it doesn't have to be 10%. It could be 12, it could be 8. But, you know, 10% is a nice number to me. So that would be my big thing at the moment. And um, I'd, again, simplify the front wings dramatically because the cars are they're still not able to follow each other well enough. Um, so that needs to be sorted out a little bit. But step one was okay, and the regulations going to the ground effect, but now it does need step two. And step two for me would make a smaller car and yeah. just make it generate a bit less downforce and a bit less optimization of, of uh, aerodynamic surfaces, especially the front wing, which is the first thing that sees turbulent air change. Yeah. Because, you know, very, very no team develops their car in the wind tunnel to work in turbulent air. They develop it to get the best lap time out of it possible. So the regulations need to make the, the uh, front wing robust enough to withstand turbulent airflow. They've done a bit, but you know it needs to be simplified a bit more. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, at a time when the media tends to concentrate on the star drivers, as I said right at the beginning of this, but actually, um, what we're seeing from Adrian Newey is the continuation of, a, of an absolutely staggering career. Mm -hmm. and, and one of his, one of the people with whom he worked closely went to Aston Martin and lo and behold, yeah. it's now the second quickest car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from, from an engineer's point of view, this is it's remarkable it's in, and also intriguing, isn't it? Well, yeah, from my point of view, it's it's it is intriguing. The thing is, it's about it's not just about black and white numbers that you get from the wind tunnel or CFD. It's about your aerodynamic philosophy, what you believe in. And I'll go way back to the Jordan 191. You know, I wanted a car that might not have as much downforce as other cars, but it would have a good secure rear end on the braking and corner entry. Um, and we built it, it had a monoshock front suspension, so on the slope speed corners it had a bit of understeer. But that all gives the drivers, you know, some confidence. So if you have a philosophy within the design of a car, you end up with a product that you understand. And that breeds through the people that you work with. And that's where, obviously, um, anybody that's been at Red Bull will, will have, some of that will have rubbed off Adrian. And, they, you know, they, they themselves will have brought some uh, questions to Adrian's philosophy. But, and that might have made his philosophy sort of diluted a little bit. But still, it will carry that direction where, you know, the, the, the aerodynamic philosophy, how you spec the car to begin with, is not just about we're going to achieve, you know, 3.6 efficiency and, and X amount of downforce. It's, it's what happens when you turn the steering wheel, when, you, when the car yaws, rolls, um, when you change ride height, braking at the end of a straight when, and, and then turn the steering wheel, or when you don't brake and you're going into a fast corner just accelerating. You know, everything's different, everything's transient. And that's that philosophy that how you manage that transient condition that makes a car good or bad. And you could take, you could probably put, you know, let's say the Mercedes in a wind tunnel, fixed ride height, sitting there quite happy against a Red Bull. And it probably will produce more downforce, but give it some transient effects where that's on the move all the time. 
And no, it doesn't give the driver confidence. So it's a it's a chicken and egg with the engineer and the driver to me. You know, you need both. But the engineer needs to have that philosophy. And I think that at the end of the day, Adrian, with his little bit of driving that he did or does, it helps. You know, I remember whenever I had drivers complaining about the position of the brake pedal or something. I related it to me driving and how, you know, you needed these things to be just second sense. You didn't want to have to think about them. And that's the sort of philosophy I'm talking about. Having a little bit of experience driving a car does no harm whatsoever. Interesting. That's been a very interesting hour and hour or so. Thank you very much, Gary. No problem. Yeah, no problem at all. I still love the Jordan 191, I must say. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice car. I'm proud of it. You know, obviously, I should be proud of it, but I am proud of it genuinely because it's a car that I put my life and soul into. And, and of the cars that I did put my life and soul in, the 91 Jordan, the 94 and the 97 were probably the three cars where I committed myself 100% to, to what they were. And we didn't read magazines. We didn't pick up Autosport every Thursday to see what was the pictures were in there. We actually thought about it and, and, and created it and the reasons behind it. And that's important, I think. That's where you get your aerodynamic philosophy from. And uh, it's important to believe in yourself and what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a good rule for life, isn't it? Okay. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a good rule for life. Nothing, nothing's different. Formula One is just yeah. Formula One, but it's life. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. No problem, Rob. Thank you. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric, proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.